we're building up to a time of year where people, regardless of what they believe, hear, watch, sing something to do with the birth of Jesus. This time of year, in the build-up to Christmas, as a culture, we can get quite sentimental about Jesus. The little baby Jesus, cosy and warm in a manger, tucked away from the world, tame and safe. The baby Jesus of this kind doesn't demand anything from us. It allows us to carry on living the life that we live in, doing whatever we like. It doesn't really have any kind of impact on our lives. It's a nice add-on, really, a comfort to the season, a pleasant experience. But just like me having to steer my kids toward the reality of what I can actually afford present-wise, we, we need to see and we need to help people see what the real meaning of Jesus' coming is and what it means in response. You see, those whose lives were bound up with the events of the first Christmas, they didn't find his coming an easy and pleasurable experience. Mary and Joseph's lives were literally turned upside down. Jesus was born in suffering. He spent his early days as a refugee. Mary was forced to give birth in a stable because there was nowhere else to go. They were rejected. And Joseph suffered reproach from people around him because he was staying with a, a pregnant woman when he wasn't married in a culture that, that didn't really go down too well in. Jesus' birth sparked a hatred in the local king, King Herod, that caused the awful murders of all the baby boys in that place under two. That's heartbreaking. Jesus, a cosy baby in a manger, the reason for the season. This baby's birth was not easy and it stirred up reactions. There were also other responses in the Gospel of Matthew. Some wise men from far away, they reacted differently to Herod. They left their homes and their families to travel hundreds of miles with expensive gifts. For a baby? They had read a prophecy in a book about an everlasting king that was to come and a star in the sky to follow. And the impact of this changed things for them. It wasn't an add-on to their lives. They had to go and do something to respond the reaction when they arrived before this baby is recorded in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says, they fell down and worshipped him. They recognised Jesus as a king. By the way, you can't help but notice as you read that account that they first met this other king, King Herod, and the reaction to, to meet him, I mean, he actually looked like a king. He had a crown and a throne. And yet, they, the reaction that they, is recorded is that it wasn't the same as that, meeting this baby in a, in a manger. The world is happy to let Jesus Christ be a baby in a manger, but not willing to let him be the sovereign king and lord that he is. Yet, that's the central truth of this story, that God becomes man. Before we start lamenting the world's view, because we as Christians, we can confuse emotional pleasure and sentiment with true adoration as well. The reaction in us that Jesus is just an add-on, he kind of brings me a bit of comfort, makes me feel a bit better about myself, but doesn't really make me change the way I think about that or do this. There's no actual cost. And sometimes, well, all of us really at times can compartmentalise our lives, giving Jesus our all on a Sunday, by getting on with the rest of our working week or whatever we do with a large portion of our times and doing just basically not doing that. Okay, Yet there, there's an element in the Gospels that stresses that the coming of Jesus is a disturbing event of the deepest impact. He didn't come as an add-on, but he came to rescue his people from their sins. He wasn't born by Mary for those who had done their best in life and got on with it, but those who knew that their best were like filthy rags. 
He didn't come as a source of good experiences, but to suffer the pains of hell in order to be our saviour. He came on a deliverance mission. I'm a firefighter. I spend uh, most of my time doing that. And obviously, apart from the obvious thing like fires, we deal with a massive range of other things, from life and death situations to lampposts hanging in weird positions. <laughs> boring, very boring things. But I've been called to all these different things, and I get called to a lot of uh, road traffic collisions, uh, car, car accidents, RTCs, and they again can range in their severity. And we train hard for them. We have got A, B, C, D plans for what we're going to do when we turn up. But the very first thing that we do, the very first assessment is of the people involved. How are they doing? What shape are they in? See, this is what really matters, isn't it? The car can be moved, it can be swept up, it can be replaced, but people can't. And the plan might be to take the roof off or take the door off, but it's useless because what they really need to save their life is to get them out now. And so it may not be the best thing for their bodies, but we have to pull them out and that will save their life. And the greatest king of all, Jesus, came to rescue. It says in Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sins. It may not be what we expect. Good people living good lives, doing good stuff. There's a baby, there's a cross. We may have the plans like me as a firefighter, take the roof off or do a load of good things. But Jesus came to do what we could not do. And when we see this, the only response to Jesus, the greatest king of all, is worship, is obedience, is following him with all we have, even when it's costly. You remember the, the series that we've been doing, The Scandal of the Grace, been a great series. And the quote that was used throughout was that the family Jesus came from is a family he came to save. Flawed people like me and like us. The Bible is very clear about what Jesus came to do. It's the true story of a king who gives up everything to come and win back lost and damaged treasure. It's a love story about a rescuer who has done it all at the greatest of cost to himself. This is why he came. It's his mission. The Christmas season offers these wonderful promises of peace and satisfaction and gain. You have the adverts from all the, the major retailers offering all sorts of things, promising absolutely everything. And they're nice adverts. I've got to be honest. I, I love them. There's no problem with them in that sense. But one of the adverts I watched was uh, promising to bring us back to the very heart of Christmas. And it was being together as a family. And um, reconciliation and love, they're themes of Christmas. They're all fantastic. But lovely adverts that can't deliver. Only Jesus can. Please don't think I'm going to start to down the Christmas mood. I love this stuff. I love Christmas. I love that it does feel like a holiday. I was joking, really. It does feel special, even if you have to work a bit over Christmas like me. It does. And people say it's the Christmas spirit and all that kind of thing. But that absolutely goes out the window if you have been like me at times and been disorganised and you have to go and buy a present late on Christmas Eve. It does. So this is a kind of message, be organised. Because I have never been beeped at in a car, shouted at in queues and generally as stressed and tired as I've been when I've done a late Christmas shop in December. My point is that the Christmas spirit with all its traditions isn't the true meaning. And it has an impact for all of us. The true meaning of Christmas is that God, out of great love to save people, became man. The incarnation of God becoming man, God with us. That's the big deal. At the start of Matthew, this gospel account in, uh, in the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet is quoted, and he says, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's incredible. God's plan all along was the perfect creator of all things was to take on creatureliness, if that's a word, and become Emmanuel, or God with us. It's a staggering truth. And God speaks of our need for a perfect man to come and do what we cannot do. Sinless, and yet pay for our sin. And that's what God has done, and he does it out of love. It's why the angels say to the shepherds on the hill, I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news and great joy for all the people. It means firstly this, that God loves you. And if you believe in Jesus and accept his work on your behalf, God is for you. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. John 3.16, we'll know this, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel. It's the good news. He loves us, and that's why he sent his son. He first loved us. The heart of God's mission is the very best of news. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Out of love, Jesus came to rescue people and it cost him everything. He gave up his place to come willingly. This has to be a, there has to be a response to this because this king coming changes everything. It's not just a nice, joyful, seasonal idea. It's not just a, a one day a week add-on to an otherwise pretty sorted life. The coming of the king was promised and he is the way to life. This morning I want to take a look at a story that Jesus shared to help people to understand the reason that he came. And I believe it will help us to freshly grasp this truth individually and for us as a church. You see, you see, Jesus came for us, but he came to unite us together as a people, his beautiful bride, the church. And then we're going to take a look at a response that is, uh, of a recorded encounter with Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to look at Luke 15. It should come up on the uh, screen behind us. It's going to be Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read it. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. These are Jesus' words about what he came to do. He was very clear. And wherever, you, wherever you, Jesus went, you read of those who were considered sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, outcasts, all gathering around him. And people such as the tax collectors were actually completely despised. They were people from within the Jewish community who were gathering money for their, from the people for their Roman enemies, the oppressors. They were despised as traitors. And the religious people of the day, people who would have studied the scriptures, 
They would have fasted. They would have prayed. They would have observed all the traditions in the, and looked really good and known what to do. They looked at Jesus and they hated what they saw because they saw those who were considered dirty and unworthy to them, not religious and perfect, surrounding him, and no attempt by Jesus to send them away. They knew there was something about him because people were gathering. This was not their idea of what God looked like. They were looking for a man-made gospel, one in which you help yourself, you do the work, and you earn your right to God. A gospel that's sought to to rescue yourself from sin, and that doesn't need a saviour. And what they saw in Jesus appalled them, and their response was anger and hatred. But Jesus tells them this story. He says, picture it, a farmer with a hundred sheep, and just one goes astray, one gets lost. And I love the way Jesus says it here, because he says it as if, like, of course you'd do this. He says, what man? What man wouldn't go off and leave the 99 to find the sheep? But that's the point. Surely as a farmer, you'd be thinking, well, I've lost one, but I've got 99 here, so I want to minimise the loss. It's not great that I've lost one, but I want to keep hold of the 99. Not leave them and go off looking for one. That's crazy. We can lose one, but not 99. And that's what these religious guys around Jesus are thinking thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? It's not obvious that you'd go and do that. But Jesus is telling us what he's doing. Remember Paul's words, I quoted in Philippians earlier. It says, Jesus gave up all he had to come and rescue. God's plan of salvation is completely upside down to what people expect. Life in God is so very different. I want to illustrate this point slightly about the feeling I feel that God has over people. I was... uh, I think this was a Christmas actually we were as a family we were with another family hanging out and we went to one of these great big um, garden centre type things and it was full of people because they're pretty sure it was Christmas and we were being really responsible parents chatting to one another as families and we carried on walking along and sort of forgot where our kids were and um, I looked around at one point and I saw uh, Hannah my wife's face it had gone white I wanted to say sheepish there but that would have been too cheesy Anyway, it had gone white, and I thought, why is that happening? What's going on there? So I looked over, and it suddenly dawned on me, where's Jude? Where's my son? He was about four or five at a time. And it's a horrible feeling when that hits you. It's a horrible feeling. feeling where, where is he? Where's he gone? And anyone who knows me, I, I am. Honestly, I'm a cool, calm, collective guy when I'm on my job. But when I'm with my family, I'm not quite so cool, calm, and collective, unfortunately. Okay, there's something about it. So I start retracing my steps, looking around, getting to the point where all these people are thinking, why are you in the way? I just wanted to push him out of the way because obviously my son's missing. So I couldn't get anywhere. There's all these shelving racks and units and all that sort of stuff in the way. And there's people everywhere. So the only thing I could think to do was to climb up one of these shelving units to the top. <laughs> so I'm in this garden centre and I go over and I'm panicking and I'm climbing up this great big shelving unit. I'm on the top. And I'm looking across all this sea of people. And I spot him over the back. There he is, walking along, happy, by the way, really happy with his friend, having a great time. And I, what can I do? I can't get to him. So I just shout, Jude, stay where you are. Of which point he panics because he's going, what, what? And everybody else in this whole garden centre looks straight at me. Thinking, What's that lunatic doing up on the top of the shelving units? But you know what? Yes, I was embarrassed. I'm not going to lie. I was embarrassed. But I didn't care, really, because my son was found, and I found him, and I got to him, and I welled up with happiness. I was so glad. I was so joyful. 
That's a small picture, I think, of what Jesus is saying here about he feels about us, about how he feels about people. We don't save ourselves. You may think that's, that you're wrong there. You may think, well, I've always been in a Christian family. I grew up with these things. It may be that you thought, actually, no, I wanted to explore Christianity. I went to Alpha or I talked with some friends and I came along and, and I found God. But the truth is, Jesus found you and he sought you out. He left the joy and the comfort and all he had to rescue you, us. And he, he thought about you. He did the dangerous work at great risk and cost. We're treasured. We're loved, we're significant, we're special, no matter how you may feel this morning. Jesus came for you willingly out of his great love, and God rejoices over you. It's for us as individuals, but it's actually, I believe, this lost sheep is also representing the church. It's for us together. I'll come back to that point in a minute. Jesus goes on, he says, when he finds this sheep, he picks it up, he rescues it, he puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it home. He then goes further, he says, I calls up his friends and he says, let's celebrate together. Let's, this is great. He's welling up with gladness like I was for my son. He did the work and we don't add anything to it except our own mess. Are you carrying burdens this morning? Look again at what the farmer does. He found the sheep, he picked it up, he put it upon his shoulders and he carried it home. You, weren't, you aren't meant to carry all your burdens. Jesus says, give them to me. God, my yoke is easy. He overcame so that in Jesus, we too can overcome as we give our burdens to him. We matter. Because God's love for us is unconditional. He loves you on your bad days as much as on your good days. That's the grace of God. He loves you when you don't feel his love as much as when you do. He loves you regardless of your performance your moods, your actions, your thoughts. His love for you is unchanging. Everything else will change. You don't really need me to tell you that. But God's love for you is constant, steady and continuous. It's the foundation for unshakable confidence. There's nothing that you can do that will make God stop loving you. You can try, but you'd fail. Because God's love for you is based upon his character, his performance, not your performance. And it's based on who he is, Jesus, not what you've done, not what we've done. Grace upon grace, lavishly poured out upon us. The problem with this time of year is that people can picture Jesus as the baby in the manger, but that's just one part of the story. Jesus grew into a man who lived a perfect life for us, paid the price that we deserve for every sin that we commit by dying on a cross, and then he proved he was God by coming back to life. This is the good news of great joy. Proclaimed all those angels on the hillside. And his outstretched arms upon that cross says, I love you this much. He wants us to find his joy, great joy, in him and his love for us. But this is not just for us as individually. This is for us as a church. Jesus came for a bride. Remember in Matthew it says, he will save his people, his people from their sins. Jesus is building his glorious church. He's building this local church, new community. He leads it. And it's made up entirely of rebels and enemies and the unlovely, all saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, and brought together. Rebels like the one you're looking at right now and the one you're sitting next to, believe it or not. 
Like the lost sheep, we, his church, the people are treasured and loved and bought. And King Jesus is coming back for his bride, the glorious church. I just want to read what Paul says about the church in Christ's union in Ephesians. Just get to it. Should come up again. And so this is a picture of marriage, but it's a picture of, it means more. Okay, so Paul says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is Ephesians 5.25. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that he refers to Christ and the church. He has great plans for us, all of us, each one of us as a church as purpose and significance, a significant part to play together. We need each other. It's not elite Christians doing one thing, and that's great. We're all precious, blood-bought people. His church is made up of people who trust him, who are committed to one another, and who meet together to worship him and share the good news. And he has plans and purpose for us, each one of us. He says this in Jeremiah 29, he says... I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not evil. And that actually, that verse was said to a people, not just to individuals. So he says that to us as a church. He's sending us out to tell people the good news of what he's already done. Good news of great joy for all the people. But we're not on our own. Firstly, he rescues us in grace, and then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the helper. This is incredible. We're a people, not just of God with us, actually, but God in us. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit gives us power to live boldly for Jesus. He encourages us. He reminds us of the truth. That's the Bible. He gives us assurance and confidence that we are his, and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Whether you've been a believer for decades or five minutes, it's, it's a one-time, but it's not just a one-time. It's a daily filling. This guy called Gordon Fee wrote an excellent book called God's Empowering Presence. There's a big, thick version and a much thinner version. I'd say go for the thinner. It tells you everything you need to know. He emphasises that this command to be filled with the Spirit is not only directed to the individual Christian, but to the gathered church. We're to be a Spirit-filled community, drenched in God's presence and overflowing with his gifts. He's a lavish God. Gordon Fee says this, he says, We are a people of the presence of God, tasting in advance the power of the age to come when Jesus comes again and fully enjoying now the Abba Father cry of true sons and daughters. Wow. This is what marks us out as completely different from any other group of gathered people. The presence of God with us and in us. It's amazing. It's wonderful grace. We're not alone to find some kind of way just sort of saved and left we're loved, we're put upon his shoulders and we're filled with his spirit together. Jesus changes everything. There is a response to his coming because when the true king comes, he has to do business with a load of other false kings that are furious at his arrival, just like King Herod. Kings in our lives such as money, sex, power, individualism, things that have authority over us but no longer have a right to. 
There's another account recorded in Luke 18. It's called The Rich Ruler. Again, I'm going to read it out. It's in Luke 18, and it's verses 18 to 30. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and, he, and you will find, have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, and who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I love this. Peter jumps in straight away because he's like this, the, the disciple Peter. See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. There is a cost to us. There's a response and a price. It's costly grace. It's not cheap and easy. Though the offer is there for all, it's a radical life, not contained to a good time on a Sunday. Grace changes everything. We live for Jesus and not for ourselves anymore. The rich ruler's king was money and material things. He couldn't give it up he could be good and keep all the rules be a good person but he couldn't allow Jesus the full throne in his life it may not be money in our lives but it'll be something family self work friends list goes on following Jesus is not always easy and comfortable sometimes we have to say no to our desires life is no longer just about me Jesus knew that in our strength, our own strength, that that is impossible. And that's why he says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. When, um, when God rescued me, when he saved me, as I was being prayed for, I remember clearly that this picture of this wall around my heart. And I felt reminded of all the things that at the time I was living for, all things that seemed so important. Particularly at the time, I was in a very, living a very hedonistic lifestyle. I had friends who were like brothers to me at the time. And we were up to all sorts of things. And I battled with this as I was being prayed for. And I remember the whispers in my ears of, of if, you, if you say yes to this, you won't be able to do this anymore. And you like doing that. And I battled. I realised the radical claim that Jesus was making upon me. I counted the cost. It seemed great at that time. But God helped me, and as I struggled with this, I said, Jesus, I want you more than these things. And I felt that wall crumble down. I felt the weight come off my shoulders, and his love broke in and overwhelmed me. I'm not a teary guy, you can ask my wife, but I was flooding with tears for hours that day. You know what? All those things that I thought were so important, they were so good, so part of who I really was, they were rubbish. They were no good. God breaking into my life is and was amazing. Far better. What a lie that was. And just as Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter in the rich ruler of this encounter, there is a cost. It can be great. But oh wow, Jesus offers so much more. 
joy. We've been talking about that this morning. Contribution, singing, joy deep within. Not just happiness, superficial happiness. Joy deep within. Peace. Peace with God. And ultimately, eternal life. In the age to come, no more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no more separation. Wow. What a lie it was that actually these things were ever really truly costly to give up. That was a day of my salvation, but again and again, Jesus has gently revealed lots of other walls in my heart that put claim on areas that should be his alone. Walls of my time, maybe, where I say, you know what, it's my time, I'm going to do with it what I want. Or my money, I earn it, I've got bills to pay, why should I give it to, to the church? Or I don't want to stand up and be the only one in a group of friends who are saying one thing and and I don't want to be the one who says something different because I believe it's wrong. As we follow Jesus, he will reveal these walls that harden our hearts and invite you to let him break them down. There is a response. We started by talking about the baby Jesus in a manger, tame and safe, no impact upon our lives and we finish seeing how King Jesus changes everything. Jesus came for the lost, broken, sinful. There has to be a response to him. He isn't safe over there in the manger. He isn't an add-on to make us feel better. He changes everything. Listen, let's read the words to one of my favourite hymns. I just want to read it out. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose such a rich crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority is in his hands and he is coming back again. The king will return for his bride, his people. And what he is offering is so much, much better.